We are in, uh, for our Advent series, in the middle of a sermon series on the blessing from Numbers chapter 6. So I'm going to briefly read that passage, and we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit more in some other places this morning. So hear God's word from Numbers 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. When we think about blessing, oftentimes we kind of easily run the trail to blessings. Um, And we think about our life as being blessed because we have blessings. So when the priest puts the blessing upon them and says, may the Lord bless you and keep you, may he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, may he he turn his face towards you, give you his peace, we, we start to equate that blessing with all the blessings of life. Now, it's not necessarily bad, but <clears throat> C.S. Lewis has a little um, meditation where he talks about being in a, in a tool shed and um, light that kind of, and the guy's never been outside this tool shed. His only life is known in this tool shed, so he doesn't know anything outside of it. Um, and he notices one day that a beam comes shining through this tool shed, and he notices this light. Um, And there's a lot of ways to read this meditation, by the way. He does a lot of things with it. But one way is to understand that Lewis is critiquing this idea that if if that light comes through the shed and all we do is examine that light and don't want to get beyond that little beam of light outside the shed to the sun, like we've missed the point. And and often that's, that's our struggle with blessings, is that we think that God is meaning to give us blessings, and that's the point of it all, instead of God's blessing ultimately just being those little light beams drawing us to Him, who's the real blessing, right? It's a real struggle for us. We get wrapped up in the, the glory of what life is about. We're glory hounds searching out all the ways to mine out different blessings and the glory that comes with that. And we, we often, just like at Christmas, we miss, we miss the God who's the giver, the Father of lights, who gives the perfect gifts, namely himself. So um, I want to hold that for a second. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll kind of get into this. And this is going to be a little bit complex today, so... You know, put on your helmets and strap on, and let's do this. God, um, we do ask that you would um, be drawing us today into the blessing of you, and namely the Jesus of this ironic prayer. That you are you are calling us this morning to see, experience, feel, know, believe. Jesus, that he is, he is the fruit of the blessing, the blessing itself, and he is the one who then places that blessing upon us. 
So I pray this morning that you would guide us through your word to see that and to walk in it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, when I was, a, I was a summer missionary one summer, um, when I was in college, Danette and I had just started dating before and um, felt like God was leading me to do this summer mission project in Mississippi. And uh, I went reluctantly because, like, Danette and I's relationship, like, the, right before I left, uh, we went to a Duke's game and then we went up onto the crest. And uh, it was that, that night that I was like, I looked at her and I said, I'm going to marry you. And uh, now we were, I didn't propose yet, but um, it was all the feels, right? Full on, face melting off. And, um, and then I left. And man, uh, that, that summer was one of the worst. Um, I, I, I got stuck in a spiral of thought that I was damned and that God was not going to ever redeem me. Um, the first sermon that I listened to from the pastor there was sliding into hell from the church pew. And um, I thought he was talking to me. And I couldn't escape the thought all summer. And uh, now, it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was actually uh, the thought worked within my flesh by the enemy uh, to sow doubt. And so Danette became this lifeline for me. Um, and much to her dad's dismay, one of the harshest lectures I ever got was when I got back and, said, and he talked about us talking every night on the phone. And you have to remember, this is like before cell phones. Like this was long distance. You had to pay extra. And all of my $600 that I made that summer went to pay the phone bill, and half of Danette's money she made that summer went to pay her, her part of the phone bill. Um, but I had this, like, desire and longing, like, to be with her, um, and she was like this place of regulation for me. She, she was home, right? Um, there's this blessing in reunion and presence, and we experience that. Now, I want to try to connect this for a second, because what's happening in Israel's history, right, like from Numbers, when, like, before the people enter the promised land, Aaron pronounces this blessing on them, and part of that blessing was that, that God's people would move into God's place, and in God's place they would experience all of God's presence, and what would come with God's presence is his, his rule, his good rule, and his blessing. And Israel marches into the promised land. They fail pretty much immediately to do what God's called them to do, to occupy the space that God's given to them. And all kinds of fallout ensues. In fact, they get to this place where they, they demand for a king. And the king, uh, God tells them, you don't need a king but me. And then he grants them to have a king and tells them that the king will take from them. And the king will lead them astray. And the king does, Right? And, of course, that leads to, you know, northern kingdom being taken away and wiped out and the southern kingdom ultimately going away into exile. Um, and Ezekiel, the prophet, speaking of this, he, it's, it's called the Ichabod vision because that word Ichabod means the glory of God is gone. He has two verses. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the household 
And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And what Ezekiel's describing is that God's presence is no longer among God's people, and Israel is no longer experiencing God's presence and blessing. Again, remember, we're thinking about the blessing that God's priest would put on God's people, that blessing leaving them. And even though the temple was rebuilt, even though exiles had returned, the glory that was and the glory foretold looked nothing uh, like in comparison to what it was supposed to be. Israel was a little like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, right? Living in the past uh, and thinking about in the present how he can throw the football over the mountain, right? That the glory is still there, but the glory is gone? Like, that's Israel. They are Uncle Rico, And the glorious vision of Zechariah, which depicts the return of God's glory to Jerusalem, Jerusalem experiencing God's peace, wholeness, his shalom, the the presence of God resting on God's people. Ichabod. Like, it's nowhere to be seen. There's Roman occupation. Um, The the people are ruled by Herod, the the, the Edomites of all people. The the Jews are either living in fear or in deep zeal, zealous, to take the kingdom back by force. And there's a few, like Simeon, waiting at the temple, aching, aching for homecoming. That That God's presence would would return to God's people and God's place. And they would experience that blessing. Will will God turn his face back to us? Will will his face ever beam towards me again? Will, Will he once again be my stronghold and my defender and if he does, will I, will I even care or respond? And into that space, the word of the Lord comes from John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things that were made were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now think about this. If you're, if you're Simeon, aching for the return of the Lord, or if you're post all of that, you're someone who lived in the wake of, of Roman occupation or the fall of Jerusalem. Let's probably more specific. Like, Jerusalem's fallen again. The temple's been leveled to the ground. Jesus has come, but you, you didn't ever hear about him. And this is being read to you. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That's you, sitting there not knowing this word. Ichabod, darkness, the glory of God is gone. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him, but to to all 
not just his own people, but to all the people who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, not of ethnicity, not of will or the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. And the word became flesh. And the presence of God dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. And and no one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. But Jesus has made him known. John introduces Jesus with this image, the, the, the light of men. Now, John is doing some things here. He's connecting this back to some of the things that we've been reading about uh, in this series leading into the blessing and the blessing itself. The image would be that the tabernacle and the temple, which represents God's presence. And in the tabernacle and the temple, there was a lampstand. It was in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, the the place of God's most intimate relationship with the people of Israel. A golden lampstand stood in that Holy of Holies, adorned with golden flowers, each holding an oil wick burning with a light. And that lampstand was the, the symbol of the tree of life in the center of the Garden of Eden. And so when John says Jesus is the light of life, he is saying that Jesus is the true tree of life. Now think about that for a second. The life that Jesus brings. Additionally, we read that the glory of God has become flesh, that he will be full of grace and truth, and in his becoming flesh, that he, Jesus, tabernacles amongst us. That word dwell, meaning to dwell with us in a tent. Here here we're taken back to Sinai to see Jesus is this new tabernacle in which the glory of God has become present again with his people. Don't miss this. John is saying that in the the Ichabod moment, when the, the glory of God is gone, it's come back. How do we know? Because Jesus has come. And that phrase, grace and truth, it's not the opposite of law and grace. Uh, It means something different. In the, in the story of, of Israel, after people demanded, um, a God that they could see, and Aaron built a calf, Moses, appeals upon God's name and his reputation and cries upon the, uh, out to God for him to be merciful to Israel. And in the very next chapter, Moses asked God to show him his glory. And we, we read this two weeks ago, but God says, you can't see my face and live. And so God shelters Moses in a rock and the backside of his glory passes by and Moses hears God's name, the Lord, the Lord, God, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Two words, steadfast love and faithfulness. Invoked at Sinai when when God displays his glory, the, the name of Yahweh revealing the essence of the God, of who he is, his saving power. The, the phrase occurs 85 times in the Old Testament and expresses 
A God who blesses his people by protecting them, keeping them, forgiving them. By using tabernacled with these two words, grace and truth, John is is taking us back to that scene when God's glory appeared to Moses and revealed his character, his name, the, the one who keeps his promises. The God who promised to bless Israel, this God whose face seems hidden, Ichabod, is once again making good on his promise and sending Jesus the word who became flesh. And in verse 17, we read that the law was given through Moses, but God was a God of grace and truth. Here, John isn't announcing a new way of God dealing with us, his people, but announcing the arrival of Jesus, the one who reveals God's grace and truth. And this Jesus is the God of glory, which means no more Ichabod. No more looking on God's glory and not living. Right? Remember, Moses couldn't look at God's face and live, so he had to be put in a rock and God's hand over the rock so he could see the backside of his glory. No, now, because Jesus has come, he's the full octane glory of God. The light is no longer hidden in a cleft of the rock. In verse 18, this word comes from the Father's side, the, the cleft of the Father's side. That's where Jesus comes from. And that glory is now full out in the open. So in John, this becomes one of the themes. And the question is, will those hearers, readers, see God's glory in Jesus? The book of John has two parts, book of signs, book of glory, right? Eleven chapters, John describes the the companions of glory. There's a glory that comes from God that's being played out in the person of Jesus, and there's a glory that comes from, from man. Jesus doesn't seek his glory, but his signs, his miracles, show that God has given him glory. Like, like glory just oozes out of Jesus. Um, Rich and I went to see you 2 this week in the sphere. I don't know if you've seen any pictures of the sphere, any uh, posts about the concert. I don't know if how you feel about you 2 63-year-old Bono up on the stage. We cried. I know it's not surprising with Richard, but with me. <laughs> like there was these moments, and in the sphere, it's this, I mean, it's, a, it's basically just a screen that goes all around you. And there's these moments where, like, the glory of the screen and the music and the gravity of who you 2 is and it's almost too much. This glory just eking out. John tells us there are those who speak on their own authority, seeking their glory, but Jesus had God's authority, which gives him glory. And the Father glorifies the Son, John will tell us, and that glory is seen when, when you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that glory ekes out. And this glory, according to John, will be most revealed in the last hour. A phrase John uses to describe Jesus' crucifixion. 
And so the whole message of John, the glory of God, which is the glory of Christ, for 12 chapters, it, it diffuses. Like if you have a diffuser, right? That, that little mist. That's what John's doing. He's diffusing the glory of God through his signs and his words. And then, in chapter 9, it's like this focused, concentrated glory on the cross. When, when you two would like kill the screen and it would just be them on the stage and their stage was a record player and the edge comes out acoustically and Bono sings, it was like concentrated glory. And what was fascinating about that is that it wasn't all this. It was just them and their voices. And in a sense, like that connects with like what John is doing. You know, John is the most magnificent of the Gospels when it talks about Jesus. And then it comes to the cross, and he spends so many chapters talking about Jesus' leading up to the cross. He, he's zeroing in that glory, undiluted. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome it. Like the book plays this out, like the glory that comes from God and the glory that comes from man are like in the book of John, mano y mano, it seems like. Now, I want you to think about this. What are some of the ways you feel the tension in the way that your life is like laid out and what you're pursuing, how you're living, what you're thinking about? The, the tension in, in that glory that comes from other people and glory that comes only from God. This battle has conflicts, and at times, like light overcoming the darkness, it seems in doubt in John. Like in John 13, when Judas betrays Jesus, John says, it was night. And for the next several chapters, it is set in darkness. It feels like darkness is going to prevail. Jesus' arrest, his trial, Peter's denial, the disciples' abandonment, all but John, of course, and the martyrs, at, uh, or Mary at the tomb. And, and then the, we're left at the end of John with the disciples back to fishing. And, and even the resurrection in John, the glory uh, seems subdued, like the appearances are all behind closed doors. And then, John 21, Jesus appears on the beach with Peter. And we're told, the, light, the, light's, the light's breaking. The light's breaking in. Right? The, the, there's a doubt where John leaves us thinking maybe darkness is going to overcome the light. I know many of you sit at this point in Christmas, at this point in Advent, and it feels dark. Some of you feel abandoned. Is the light going to win? And in those moments, the temptation is to seize glory, to find light, to make light happen. In John 21, that's what Peter's doing. Back to fishing. The 
And Jesus comes, and then there's this great harvest of fish. Jesus turning his face. Remember that scene in, at the betrayal? Some commentators like to think that Jesus kind of looked at Peter and like, when he's betraying him and Peter sees his face and he runs out and weeps. It's the look of love. It's, it's Jesus' face turned so directly at Peter, the glory flowing out of his face towards Peter undiluted. And he knows that Jesus' love is so great, it causes him to look away. Have you ever experienced that? Like, it's just such an intimate moment where someone sees you and it's too much for you. And then on the beach, right, that look happens again. John wants you and I to see the gospel bears witness to this glory. He, he's testifying that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you've looked face to face with God, and his glory, you, you can only do that through Jesus. And then, if you can do that, you're called to bear witness to this glory. God has shared his glory with, with the Son, so, so we can see not the backside, but see it from his face. And in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays that we would dwell with him in such a way that we would see his glory. The glory that comes from the name of the Father, the name that makes Jesus, that Jesus makes known. Jesus is the one that makes God known. It is his name known. Like we hear his name that God is merciful and, and, and slow to anger and rich in love, and then Jesus comes and manifests it. He is the blessing. Jesus kept the disciples in the Father's name. And that was given back to Jesus. That his, his followers, he prays that they would remain in the world, even as they were with the Son in glory, that they would extend the mission of the incarnation, like need it, into the world. And Jesus ends, Peace I leave with you. I hear the connection to the blessing. He is the blessing. He is the, the turned face of God. He is the countenance that's always towards you. That is Jesus. He is the place of security and rest. He, he's the one who's going to keep you. He, in fact, your life, is, it, Paul says, is hidden with Christ in God. That's how kept you are. L like in the heavenlies right now where you sit, no matter what's going on in turmoil inside of you, no, no matter what circumstances are going on outside of you, the most real thing about who you are, if you are in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ and God. You are seated in the heavenlies with him. You can't be touched. The gospel says you are so protected under the shadow of the wings of Jesus. That's, that's the most real thing about you. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is the, the blessing? Like that that's the thing that you're most needful in your life of? That he is the, the, the smiling face of God? He, he's the turned head of your father? That he's the hands 
and the oil that are placed upon your head, that that's who Jesus is. He's the one that's blessing you, enacting in you the words of blessing, that you might be a blessing because you've been blessed with Jesus. Do you believe that? I'm skipping a bunch of stuff, so give me a second. You see, the favorable countenance of God, pronounced in numbers, finds its full expression and realization in Jesus the Christ, the the glory that becomes flesh, in whose face we see the glory of God. The, the, The glory in his face is the unfading glory of the gospel. Whoever's seen the Son has seen the Father, Therefore, believing in the Son is the ultimate fulfillment of the benediction is the only avenue to the blessings of the benediction. Let me repeat that. Whoever has seen the Son has seen the Father. Therefore, believing in that Son is is the ultimate fulfillment of the benediction of number six is the only avenue to the blessings of number six. I love that. Because I'm so tempted to seek out the blessings and not the God of the blessing. We, we talked at the beginning about Lewis's Till We All Have Faces, right? There is this search that we're all after to be whoever we are, whoever we think we are, whoever we think we should be whoever somebody else thinks we should be. Like, we're all seeking, like, that face. Like, let me, let me try to do this in two ways. Like, you're seeking the face of someone else to beam towards you in approval, and you're also seeking your own face, your own identity, either in response to that or in competition to that, to make your own, like, face in the world. Competing glories is part of this. And then Jesus comes, and he melts your face off. Like, like hear me for a second. All those false searches, not not like Moses, his face would have been melted off in Exodus, by the way, clean. No, your face is like wax. You're constantly reshaping it and remaking it for the sake of glory. And Jesus comes and the heat, the light of his life melts it, remakes it. Like Jesus is giving, is in a way giving your face back to you through his face. And this is the glory that comes from God. And what that means is you don't have to justify yourself anymore. You don't have to judge someone else's face or the attention of someone else's face that you're not getting in your face. You don't have to fake. 
You don't have to like dress this thing up. There's a whole other thing I was going to talk about, so I have to be careful not to talk about that. I want to end with this, is that um, we were listening to this song on the way, Leonard Cohen's There's a Crack in Everything. There's a crack, a crack in everything. Now, I uh, used this quote in my first sermon I ever gave. He goes, that's how the light gets in. That's what Cohen sings. He's got this real deep voice, if you know Leonard Cohen's voice. So I told everybody in the audience, all these youth kids, let the light shine through your crack. <laughs> but, but I think about like, like, like what happens with our faces as we age. Like, like the face is such a, re- a revelation of who you are. How the lines of age reveal things about your face. Like you get these things and you can't get rid of them. So if you're a scowler, you're a scowler. It reveals, right? And, and to look upon another's face, to look upon those lines and cracks and, and scars, like oftentimes the things we're most wanting to cover up, like there's a glory in that and an intimacy that comes from that. The, the glory of man is about shading and hiding and altering that. And the glory that comes from God is about like remaking that, not, not in the sense of like taking it away, but how the scars and the cracks and the wrinkles are, are the light both breaking in and breaking out. Like there's this way that like your story gets formed on your face. And as God remakes that face, the, the light gets in, and also then the light breaks out. And through your story, like the blessing of Jesus, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, becomes a blessing for someone else. Our faces being transformed, Paul would say, from one degree of glory to another. The veil has been lifted because of Jesus. And now you look at Jesus face to face, And all that stuff is being remade from from one degree of glory to another, as Paul would say, by the Spirit. May it be so, City Press. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would uh, remind us you are in the the remaking business and the blessing of, of Jesus. is that you are remaking us, remolding us, reshaping us. You're, you're melting our faces off and transforming it from one degree of glory to another to look like your son. But, but that blessing is the blessing of your presence and your life in us, like your light shining into our darkness and the darkness not being able to put it out, even all of the ways we search for man-made glory, to make a name for ourselves, 
all the ways we justify ourselves. Like you're still here beaming your light and the light overcomes the darkness in us so that we're like reborn, remade, renewed, reconstituted in the world. And so I pray with these words from John 1, 2 Corinthians 3, and number 6, that you would remake us today. As we come to the table, that we would taste and see your goodness and grace, and that would keep working on us. That we would see your faces turned towards us in this meal today. And that you would enable us to turn our face towards each other as a result. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.